If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 18. We're looking at uh, what is so glorious about Jesus, what is so great uh, about our, our Savior, about Christ, our Lord, and, and what a perfect time of the year to be thinking about these things. We'll probably be ending this pretty close to Christmas anyway. And so, as normally happens, I have all these plans for what we're going to do for the Advent season and then other preaching things get in the way. Uh, so, as we begin getting really close to the, the time of Advent and, and, and thinking about the coming of Christ, what a great time to remember why it's so great that Jesus is coming. What is so amazing about Jesus that we should celebrate uh, his birth, the work that he's going to do. And so that very much fits with what Peter is saying here in 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 18. Let's uh, stand in the honor of reading God's word and we'll go ahead and read this passage and then we'll start looking through at the various, uh, the various uh, attributes of Christ that are so, so glorious. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Father, we come to you right now, God, asking that we would grow in grace and knowledge of our Christ, that we would understand what it means that Jesus is our Lord, that he is our Savior, that he is the Messiah, so that we might, Father, heap glory upon him now, today, and every day, every day till that day of eternity. And it is in the name of Jesus that we even are able to pray and we proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Amen. All right. So what is so uh, glorious about Jesus? Well, we've seen that he is the Lord. Uh, We just sang just a minute ago. He is Yahweh, the the Lord of the Old Testament, uh, but also our Lord. He is our master, our ruler, our king, uh, but he is also our savior. And that's what we're looking at now. Uh, How is Jesus? We say it all the time. We say Jesus is our savior. What is he saving us from? What is he doing? And so the first thing, the the normal thing that we think of is that he is saving us from our sins. And so we're going through all of the vast scriptures, right? This is one area you don't want to truncate and go, I'm sure you all know this, Uh, something like that. This is one area where we want to dig deep and see what is scripture talking about when it says that Jesus is our savior who saves us from our sins. Because we remember, we start all the way back when Jesus first appears on the scene in in John, uh, when John the Baptist says, behold, right? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we started to look at, well, how, if Jesus is going to save us from our sins by taking our sins away, how does he do that? Well, he washes us. And we saw how he washes our sins away. But then we saw that he can only wash our sins away by, as we've been looking at, by dying in our place. Jesus is able to take our sins away. He's able to wash our sins away because he is the sacrifice that dies in our place. And that's what we started looking at last week that we saw that sacrifices, remember sacrifices have to die and they have to die uh, because sin brings death. Death that is both a a reality, like you are dead, but but also a, a penalty that comes from sin. So sacrifices die because In those sacrifices, we're recognizing the deadly nature of sin itself. So Jesus, our sacrifice, comes to die in our place. 
Uh, someone who is going to pay for our sin. Because we know someone's going to pay for it, right? Either you or Christ. Those are the options. But someone is going to pay the death penalty owed for every one of your sins. I mean, God will cleanse the whole of creation from every drop of evil. Not one sinful deed or word or thought that has ever been uttered or done in the history of creation will go unpunished. Not one. Every single sin will be punished and punished to its full extent. Uh, Everyone will receive the death that it deserves. So to save us knowing that that's what's going to happen with every sin in order to save us. And like we saw in spite of us, because we were sinners when he did it, Jesus purposefully and willfully offers himself up for us. And with his debt, we saw we started to see the results of that. So that's what Jesus does. What are the results of that? We saw how our debt is gone. Remember, nailed to the cross. And we saw that that word, uh, that he has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That that idea, that word cancel, means to blot out, uh, to obliterate, which I like the idea, uh, to just obliterate the, the debt that we owed. Uh, Christ takes it on by dying for us. And that's where we had to stop uh, looking at what Jesus' death accomplishes, uh, the results of that death that that uh, we're going to see that Jesus removes our past, that he changes our present, and that he redirects our future, all of these things uh, as our Savior. Uh, So even in, if you got today's notes, even in today's notes, or if you're following the notes along uh, on the app, uh, you'll see I kept the first last week's notes still in there, already filled out for you. If you're like, hey, we already answered these. Yeah, Uh, the blanks uh, are are later. We we kept those because, uh, uh, so the, the front page is really, of your notes, the whole of last week's stuff. Because I didn't want sort of two sheets of a weird sort of abbreviated, what does Jesus do? I didn't want you grabbing the second sheet uh, by itself and going, where's that first sheet at? Uh, so this is really just sort of a delineation of wh- how, why does Jesus die in our place? Why does Jesus have to die? And what does that do for us? Why is death essential for our our Savior? Because there's more. Not only is our debt paid, as we saw, our sin brought with it not just debt, our sin brought with it a curse. And so we're going to see that in Christ, in Jesus' death, our curse is lifted up. Okay, so that's the next thing. So our debt is paid, that record uh, of debt nailed to the cross, canceling that record, obliterating it, but also with our debt wiped away, that that burden uh, hanging over us is lifted. Uh, But again, that doesn't mean everything is okay. Jesus opens our eyes to another fact that that is even greater than we we realized that without Christ, uh, Jesus, not only does he take sort of our our disobedience, uh, without Christ, we are lawbreakers. That's our problem. Without Christ, we are lawbreakers. And we're going to see what what happens when you're a lawbreaker. What does James chapter 2 verse 10 tell us? For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So if you and I have sinned one sin, if we have broken any part of God's law, we are breakers, 
of the law. There's no level of lawbreaking in this sense. There's no degree of, well, this person's not really a lawbreaker because they only send these sins and this person send these. So this guy's really a lawbreaker and this guy's not. Look, if you, if you do not keep all of God's law, whoever fails to keep all of the law is guilty of all of it. We'll be held accountable for all of it. And the Bible says that since we are lawbreakers, that means we are a cursed people. Deuteronomy chapter 27, this is that long list of of curses that uh, we've been uh, reading and seeing. And and at the end of Deuteronomy 27, in verse 26, after all of these curses, what does it say at the end of it? It says, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law. How? By doing them. And all uh, the people shall say, Amen. So it's not just that you're cursed if you hear the law and you reject it outright. It's not just that you're cursed if you look at the law and say, I'm not going to do that, right? That would certainly make you a cursed person. But here it says you confirm the law, not just by confessing that the law is good and right. You confirm it, how? By doing it. That cursed is everyone who doesn't do all of these things that have just been laid out in the book of Deuteronomy. All these things, if you don't do them, uh, you are a cursed person. So the the verse that Zachary read uh, about that long list of of curses in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15. Look at what it says. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. That anyone who doesn't keep all of the law is cursed. If you don't do everything that the law has said, you are cursed and those curses will hunt you down and will overtake you. They will overwhelm you. They will destroy. So, so you're, you're looking, what you're looking at here is a life of misery. And yet this, this life will be the closest thing to heaven that anyone who is a lawbreaker will ever experience. So these curses listed are earthly curses, but they're just setting you up. They're just shadows of an even greater eternal curse that comes to those who are lawbreakers. Well, the problem is we know we haven't kept all of it, right? So that's the curse for lawbreakers. If you've broken one, you've broken all of it. What does that mean? He who breaks the law is a cursed person. These curses, all of them will hunt them down. They will overtake them. So there is then for you and I as lawbreakers, a curse that hung over us, not just a debt, but a curse that cursed is everyone who doesn't keep every word of the law. Well, how can you and I escape that curse? Well, Jesus takes that curse on himself. He takes that curse by becoming the curse. So listen to how Paul talks about it in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. Christ redeemed us 
from the curse of the law. So it's not like, it's like people in the New Testament, they didn't know that the law brought with it a curse, that if you were a lawbreaker, you were a cursed man. It's like, it, it, like, like having a black spot, <laughs> like you are marked for destruction because you are a lawbreaker. And so as we're reading God's law and we're reading it and saying all that we, we are not doing right now and all that we didn't do in the past and we go, here's all these curses. If we don't do all of it, what hope do I have? Paul says in Galatians 3 that Christ redeemed us. He paid us out of that curse by becoming a curse for us. How? It says, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Christ shows us not only that our debt is paid, but that our curse is lifted up. How? By dying on a cross. He is dying on a tree on purpose. It's not just happenstance that even the mode of Christ's death on a tree, not stoned, not beheaded, not any of those things, but lifted up is done on purpose to show that he is the curse for us, that he is bearing not just our debt, nailing our debt and paying that for us. He is becoming the curse that we were. So again, even his death on the tree is purposeful. Our curse is lifted, lifted up. I mean, there's, there's no single act. As you're, as you're walking through the, the New Testament, and you're reading your gospels, there's not a single act of the life of Christ and his death that is not an intentional picture of our salvation. Even the method, the mode of his death is foreordained by God to teach us something about what he's doing, that we're cursed people. How can Jesus show us that he has taken our curse by hanging on a tree so that people will look at that and say, that man is cursed, right? He's bearing your curse. He is cursed, but not because he deserved it. You remember, think about the thieves on the cross next to him. I said, look, he, we deserve to be here, but he doesn't. He, well, then why is he a cursed man hanging on a tree? Because he's becoming the curse for his people. He is redeeming them from the curse that hung over us as lawbreakers. So you and I, lawbreakers, no matter how many times we come in here, how much stuff we do, you break the law, you are a law breaker you can you can drive 25 your whole life but you decide to drive 175 one time you can't go to that cop and say look i i understand that this is a little awkward but i want you to know that every other time in my life i've driven the speed limit and him go all right i don't even know why i pulled you over uh i should have known i was gonna make up something about a taillight but i didn't uh and then let you on your way i mean he's gonna be like that's great but you still broke the law right? We are lawbreakers. And with lawbreaking comes a curse. The only thing that can happen to those who are cursed is that curse will hunt them down. So you can picture almost like this boogeyman of a curse pursuing us, threatening to overtake us, consuming our life here on earth, destroying our earthly life. And Christian, realize how much Jesus taking that curse away didn't just change your eternity, but changed your today. Because a lot of those curses mentioned in Deuteronomy, they're just not describing what hell is going to be like. They're describing the horrors that will come upon your life today. The consequences of sin that would have ruined your life. See, we are so blessed that that curse hasn't been just consuming and ripping apart every day of our life so that we're not just sitting here just saddened and sickened by our existence. We're happy. We are joyous people. Why? 
Because the curse has been taken away. Because that thing that was hunting you down and all the consequences that come with sin have been taken away by your Christ. If you're looking at your life and going, man, I really like my life, which if you're a Christian, you should be looking at your life and going, man, I really like my life. There's something you don't like about your life. Either that's a problem in how you're viewing your life or there's a problem in your life that you need to change. Uh, But if you're a Christian, you should be looking at your life and saying, man, what a blessed life. What a good life. What a joyous life. Well, why is that? Because the curses of Deuteronomy are no longer pursuing you. Because Christ bore the curse for you. We know sin brings with it horrible consequences. The reason your life, not just your eternity, which is what we often do. Of course your eternity, but also your today has been changed because of Christ. You look at a wife that you love, where does that come from? Well, one, your love for her only comes from Christ who has changed your heart. Her love for you only comes from Christ who has changed her heart. Your love for your children, your love for your home, all of those things, your love for your church, where do those come from? They are seeds born from what should be salted soil. But God has changed the soil of your heart, changed your life, changed the consequences so that today when you look at your life and say, no matter if I'm as happy as I want to be, I'm at least happier than I deserve to be. When you look at your life and say, and you, you look at what you've got and say, how can this be? How can this be my life? One reason, Christ bore the curse for you. So that your life is one filled with happiness and joy. So the world looks at it and they go, man, our life is horrible. What is it about you? Well, the curse that is pursuing you every day and is overtaking every step of your life and destroying every relationship and, and every situation, every consequence coming with sin. Well, that curse has been born for us by Christ. We're no longer cursed as lawbreakers. And Christ did that by hanging on a tree. So that curse that pursued us is lifted up. That's, that's so our curse that we deserve, that curse is now gone. Both, that's true both for today and for our life on earth and for the life to come. But there's more. How about more of our, our present, what Christ does with, with our present? We, we looked at last time that we're being washed and is washing us away, he's making us born again. But what's weird is in describing salvation, God says that, that salvation doesn't just bring birth. Salvation also brings death. And that's what we see. In Christ's death, we are dead. Okay, so what are the results of Christ's death by Christ dying in our place? Christ dies in our place, and as a result, we die with him. Now, now this can seem crazy because it, it seemed like we were talking about how death was what we were trying to avoid. Like when we looked last week, it was all about sin brings death, and if you want to avoid that death, you've got to trust in, in Christ. Now, uh, all of a sudden, the good thing is that we die. Well, we're trying to avoid the penalty of death, but in a, in a great twisting of the story that is, is God's redemptive work, now death is a blessing. How so? Well, the Bible tells us that Christ's death is our death, but instead of a death that should have brought us eternal punishment and eternal judgment, Christ's death is a death to sin. That Christ makes us dead to the sin that had killed us. Take, for example, Romans chapter 6. So look at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Paul says, 
what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So what's going on in Romans 6? You got this question of, well, if God's grace is always greater than our sin, right? Well, shouldn't we sin more? To make grace greater, right? That's uh, And that's the crazy sort of Bible math that we'll try to do, right? The, sort of like the freedom in Christ sort of thing. Uh, well, if, if his grace is always bigger than my sin, how do I make his grace bigger? I make my sin bigger. Uh, and Paul's like, yeah, no, uh, of course that's not what you do. Why? Why does he say, though, you shouldn't do that? Notice he doesn't say because sin is wicked. He doesn't say, no, you shouldn't do that because sin is wicked and horrible. He says what? No, because you have died to sin. He says that death, he goes on, look at what he says. He says that death is, is, verse 3, he says that death is pictured in our baptism. Right? In our baptism, we go under the water. We are buried in the wrath of God, like kind of, he said, like the flood waters of Noah, remember, as Peter describes it. So we go under, we are, that, that going under the water is a picture of our death. Baptism is picturing our death. But, but unlike uh, their deaths in, in Noah's day, which were frightening deaths as the flood is consuming them and sweeping everything up, our death is not a curse. Our death is joyous. We are glad to be going into the water because death is not the end of the story for us which is why going under the water isn't the isn't the end of baptism right thank goodness right it's like and you're baptized uh, at least we know they're going to heaven that's a picture of their death now they've died with christ amen uh people be a whole lot more nervous about being baptized it's like oh, god says you got to do it like oh man is gonna just have a nurse handy just he says as we're united in christ's death we're also united in his life, which is why we come up uh, out of the water like he comes up out of the grave. And here's where we come back to the cross. Look at what he says. He comes us back, takes us back to the cross. Why? Because what does he say was crucified on the cross? Well, we know our sin, our debt, our curse. But what does Paul say? What does Paul say here in verse six? What is also crucified on the cross besides our sin, our debt, our curse? He says, our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin, he says, might be destroyed, might be brought to nothing. But that death is good, he says, because in that death, we are set free from sin. The old us bore that sinful curse, that slavery to sin, to be set free from that, the old us had to die and that's what jesus does in his sacrifice on the cross the old us the us that is stained by sin is done away it is crucified with christ 
So on the cross, what is on the cross with Jesus? Yes, your sin. Yes, your debt. Yes, your curse, but also you. You were crucified with him. The old you that would have just been the only you was crucified on that cross with Jesus Christ. That's why we say Jesus dies in our place. And because of that, we are dead. And he says that our, our death to sin is not just about a, a future hope. It, it just affects, it also affects our today. That we are to live. So we are dead, but we're supposed to live like dead people. We are supposed to live like dead men and women. People who are dead to this world. He says this in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, down in verse 20 through verse 23. He says, if with Christ... You have died to the elemental spirits of the world. Remember, it's very similar to what uh, Peter says when he talks about the elements of this world we burnt up. He's not talking about the periodic table being burnt up. He's not talking about the earth is going to be melted with fire and just all of a sudden the earth's gone and they rebuild it like a wax thing or whatever. Uh, if with Christ you've died to the elemental spirits of the world, the, the earthliness, the worldliness of this world, why is it as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? You know, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they're used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So what, what Paul is saying here in Colossians 2, he says, look, we've died to the things of the world, to those elemental building blocks. The result, uh, uh, those elemental things, these lists of do not taste, do not touch. These are all futile elements to fight against sin because the world realizes it's got a problem. The world realizes that they're all bad people. And so you get these different religions that spring up because they realize they're bad people, but they also don't want to submit to the one true God. So they're like, let's just make these other things, these self-made religions that all have these things about do not taste, uh, do not touch, uh, or do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. I, I think it's actually do not, do, do not, do not eat, do not do not taste it even, do not touch it, sort of, it gets more and more severe as the list goes on. So the, so the world in their fake fight against sin, right, the world is fake fighting against sin, and that's why you see things like the world will say, we've got to have justice, and then their answer to justice seems to be more injustice. Uh, and it's like, I don't know why? Because they're not really seeking justice. Proverbs actually tells us they also don't know what justice even is. Uh, so the world recognizes that we're filled, this world is filled with a bunch of bad people. What are we going to do? Let's make rules for them. Uh, and they'll make up all these rules and they're like, that's good. That will stop us from being evil. Uh, and Paul says, but none of them do, right? No one goes no one goes to the world of Islam, right? In the Middle East, goes, I think we need to go find out how to make a peaceful civilization, right? Islam and its rules, man, they really nailed it. Uh, it's like, you, you're like, that is, that is one obviously messed up thing. Uh, why? Because it is a self-made religion. And what does Paul say? It is going to have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And if you go to the Islamic world or you go to the, to, to the, the world of Confucianism or Hinduism or the word, world of Buddhism, it is a flesh-driven world under the surface. It is not actually stopping any sin. It's just covering it from public eye. 
But in Christ, we have died to that sinful world so that we might now, he says, faithfully and effectively put that sin to death. As he's going to say in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. If you've died to the things of this world, what should you do? Put to death then the things of the world. So because you have died to the world, because we have died to the world, now we put the world to death in us. Since we've died to the things of the world, our job is now to kill the things of the world that still cling to us. Peter described it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse, verse 24. He says that, uh, that on the cross, Jesus you know, kills our slavery to sin and makes us alive to the things of God. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So you and I were dead in our sin, but at the same time, very much alive to our sin. See that weird sort of position that the Bible says we're in? We're dead because of sin, but also alive to sin. So we're dead, but yet pursuing sin. But now through Christ's death, Peter says, we are dead now to sin. Not just dead in sin, we are dead to sin and alive to righteousness. In other words, in Christ, we are now able to live righteous lives. What uh, Paul says about the world in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, that there's none righteous, no, not one. That is true apart from Christ. But now in Christ, we are very much alive to righteousness. His wounds have healed us. His wounds have fixed the, the problem of sin that hung over us, which is, again, what is What is Peter referring back to? He's referring back to Isaiah 53, right? He's referring back to the, by his wounds, they are healed. Well, let's, let's, uh, as we know, Isaiah 53 is referencing uh, this suffering servant. But Isaiah 53 isn't the only place where this type of healing to be righteous uh, is mentioned. God describes it this way in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. Beginning in verse 26, he says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So he said, look, our old heart, the old us, the one that needed to die, was a heart of of stone. It was unloving. It was unmoved by the things of God. It was stone toward godly things. That heart is killed. And now God makes our hearts alive. Hearts that are now soft like flesh, not hard like stone, that walk in God's word and are careful to obey him. So in the cross, how does Jesus save us? In the cross, we die. But this time... Not from sin, we die to sin. Our, our death, which is, which is one, like this frightening warning. Now in Christ, our death becomes a living hope. The best thing that happens to us is we die. And if you think about the old you or the you before sin, were it not for the restraining power of God's word, it would have been a you that was only dead. It was cold to the things of God. And those curses and those consequences would have pursued your life 
until all of you was dead, both physically and eternally. So Christ changes our present in that. Our present life where we were dead to him and alive to sin, now we are alive to him and dead to sin. All of that Christ does on the cross. On the cross, he makes us dead to sin and alive to righteousness. So if you're here going, I want to live a righteous life. We, we, I've talked to some of you about your week this week and the righteous things that you've done. Those are righteous things. Those are good things. Well, where did those come from? You are only able to pursue those things, only alive to those things because of Christ. But because of Christ, you are very much alive to those things, right? You are wanting to do those things. You are wanting to live righteous lives. You are hating your sin. Why? Because Christ really and truly changes you. And so Christian, rejoice that you who were dead to the things of God are now alive to righteousness, to pursue it, to live it, to be righteous when, when once we were only dead. So rejoice in that because when you rejoice in your righteousness, you're rejoicing not in you, but in Christ who has made you a new you, who has killed the old you and put a new you one with a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone, one free to live and pursue righteousness. So celebrate Christ, pursue righteousness today. But Christ's death also, uh, not only does it change our, our present, it also is going to impact our future. So, so Christ's death is going to move, is going to move our, our glory. Now in, we're going to glory not in ourselves uh, and not in this world, now we are going to glory in our God. So we will glory in God. Christ's death is going to be the foundation that assures us that in this life, everything is going to be okay. That we can trust God, that we can glory in God and know this is all going to work out because of Christ. So Romans chapter 8, verse 31 and 32 says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So he says, look, Jesus' death is, is loving grace from the father. And, and is the foundation, he says, of our, of our trust in God. We know that not only will God not bring doom into our life now, right? God's not just going to bring the hammer of like horrible living down on us because those curses are no longer befall us. But we also know that he will, in his grace, give us all good things. How do we know that? Where, do we, where does this great confidence come from? He says, the cross. The death of Christ in our place. That, that it is because the Father did not spare his son, but gave him up for us. That's why he's saying, look, if he did that, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So we see that not only in Christ is the curse taken away, but blessing and grace now replace it. So again, our lives aren't just, look, you avoided the horrible consequences. Now God is graciously giving us all Things. It, it, is, it is a death in Christ that destroys our past, that gives life to our present, and gives joyous promise to our future. But it didn't just change our future. 
The death of Christ changed the future of the entire world. So we, we, we looked at Isaiah 53 and we mentioned it, but Isaiah 53 isn't actually the beginning of Isaiah 53. It's one of those weird chapter breaks in scripture. Because the beginning of what's said in Isaiah 53 actually starts in Isaiah 52. And look at, look at Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. Let's talk about the suffering servant. Look at what it says. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. And shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see. And that which they have not heard they understand. This is a a twist on Isaiah 6. Uh, if you remember what happened there and, and what Isaiah was going to come and do and tell people in Israel things and show them things, but they're not going to understand it. What happens, Jesus' death here is, is a hope, but a hope not just for us and a hope not just for the Jews, right? The suffering servant that's going to come, it's going to be a hope for those who have never even been told about the hope before, who've never heard about it, for kings whose mouths will be shut as Christ sprinkles them clean. And they're going, why is he sprinkling us with blood? Because they didn't even know about the sacrificial system. They didn't know about all this stuff. And yet Christ is coming and cleansing them, not just of the Jews, but many nations. So Christ is going to come. The suffering servant is going to come and sprinkle many nations and shut the mouths of kings who are going to marvel at this Christ that they never had even heard of. And yet now they see. That they'd never been told them yet. Now they understand. And, and what impact is this going to have on kings and nations? Well, well, the Bible doesn't just leave Isaiah 52 and 53 hanging. It actually picks it up again in Revelation. It's brought back up. Kings and nations and the lamb and the suffering dying lamb are brought back up in Revelation 21. So in Revelation 21, it says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. And so here again, we see the glory of Christ. That These nations that that have been sprinkled clean in Isaiah 52. And these kings whose mouths have been shut by by the work of that slain lamb. Who they had never seen or heard about or been told about. Who, who now they see and now they, they understand. Well, these kings and these nations are not just sitting idly by. They see, they hear, they understand, and they begin, Revelation says, to walk by the glory that they see. And their glory, they now bring, not into their kingdoms, but they bring the glory of their kingdoms and their nations into a new kingdom. The kings bring their glory. The nations bring their glory. And the truly glorious king is building a new kingdom out of the glories of the nations and the kings 
of the earth. So in the end, we and the world will look at the slain Christ who is, remember this is that great twist. How does Isaiah 52 begin? He's going to be exalted and he's going to do it by being lifted up. And when the king is lifted up on the cross, when he dies in our place, we and the nations, the world, the kings will say glory, glory. So how does Jesus take away our sin? He washes them away. How are they washed away? The father sends the son to pay our debt. What did we owe? Our sin owed death, death that must be paid. So in spite of us, Jesus purposefully and willingly lays down his life, obliterating our death by nailing not just himself, but it to the cross, blotting out our transgressions, taking away the curse that hung over us as lawbreakers in his death, giving us life and a future and a hope as the God who gave his son will also graciously give us all things and the mouth of the world will be stopped as the good news of Jesus Christ covers the earth like waters cover the sea. And our response and theirs can only be one thing, glory. Let's pray. Just as we take time to pray and and think about the death of Christ and how his death, the results of his death for our life, And we saw sort of this buildup in Revelation is building up this glory of Christ as Christ is revealed. The suffering servant is revealed to be the great king, high and exalted, lifted up, whose glories the nations bow down to, the kings of the earth flock to. The only question we can ask is, after looking at how glorious the cross is, after being told this is how the, the servant is exalted, how he is lifted up, What glory captivates you? So so the nations are captivated by this glory. The kings of the earth are captivated by this glory. But what glory captivates your life? Is it the glory of this world? I mean, if you look at your life and you see the choices that you make and how you've been living, are are you captivated by the things of this world? Because in this, in scripture, the the world is supposed to be bringing their glories to Christ because they've got nothing to compare to him. How is it instead that we as Christians are now running after the things of the world? Think of how crazy that's going to be. The nations bringing their glories to Christ and here we are claiming Christ and yet running after the things of the world. Running after a thing far less glorious than Christ. There's nothing in this world that compares to the glory of Christ. Are you enamored with that glory are you, or are you still running after things of this world? Maybe it's riches, maybe it's fame, maybe it's pers- whatever it is. Do you see that the greatest thing in all of creation is Christ? Nothing more glorious than God. And so you will give your life in pursuit of that? Or, or do you recognize and would you proclaim that Christ is glorious, but yet you've spent most of your life chasing the things that this world has to offer? And, and yes, chasing Christ, you know, maybe in the morning for a little bit, maybe in the afternoon, uh, maybe on Sundays, but it's not your life. It's an addendum. It's an appendix, but it's not your purpose. Is Christ so glorious that he is all that you want 
Maybe you're not chasing the glory of this world. Maybe you're chasing the glory of yourself. So so the nations brought their glories in, and yet here we are going to the glory of the nations. Well, we also see that the kings of this world realize that their glory is nothing compared to the true king. So all the kings of this world who have all these people telling them how wonderful they are, right, to try and get favors and things from them, those kings have their mouths shut when they see the true king. They realize that their glory is nothing compared to his. So we, who are not kings, do we realize that though? Do we realize that we are nothing compared to Christ? Are you bringing your glory to Christ's kingdom or are you trying to build a kingdom out of your own glory? Are you just thinking about, oh, what will people think of me? And what is my life going to be when I die? And, you know, all of these things. What do people think of me right now? And these people who are living in this house or this part of my family or, you know, what are they thinking of me? Or, or are you just saying, I'm, I'm living for Christ and his glory. I'm taking anything, any glory that people want to give to me and I give it straight to Christ. Or are you worried about the glory of yourself? Christian, are you captivated with the glory of the cross? Again, so many of these things become so normal for us. Is your mouth stopped by the lamb who is slain to pay your debt? When you look at Christ and what he has done for you, can you not help but shut your mouth and stare in wonder and glory? Or has the death of Christ become so commonplace to you that that you can talk right through it? That it doesn't captivate you anymore. Doesn't shut your mouth. And just just like the nations, do your feet then walk by the light of his glory? If you're truly captivated with the glory of the cross, just like the nations were and just like these kings were, when they were captivated, when their mouths were shot and they were sprinkled clean, what did they do? They began to walk by that glory. Does the glory of Christ shape everything you do in your life? Does it shape the choices you make as a father? They're all shaped by the glory of the cross or are they shaped by what you want your kids to be based on how you want to perceive or what you want your kids to do or you lay it all at the cross and say the cross is going to determine everything. Is it shaped how you are as a wife, how you are as a husband, how you are as a, as a church member, as a friend? Are all of those things laid before the cross and walked in the light of his glory like moths to the flame? Or you think you can just live any, any old way and just, just throw your eyes toward the glory of the cross on Sunday and everything will be fine? Those who are not walking by the glory of the cross are by nature walking away from the cross. And if we truly see the king as glorious, we will not have to convince you to walk by its light. You will not be able to help but walk by it. And when you don't, you will feel a pang, not unlike death itself. Christians, may we glory in the cross of our Christ who has died to take away our sin, 
to pay our debt, to lift our curse, to kill the old us, and to bring a future and a hope that we did not deserve, and yet that we are tasting even now. May we walk by that glorious cross. Father, we come to you today and I ask all of these things that you tell us in your word. Father, I pray that they would grip our hearts and our minds, that we would marvel at what Christ has done for us. That no longer would we, would we while, while the nations are supposed to be bringing their glories to you and why the cross is supposed to be so wonderful and so glorious, Father, that, that we who, who are living in this life, that, that we would instead be walking back toward the nations. Father, may we be enamored with you. May we be pursuing you, reading in your word, praying to you, beseeching you, glorying in you who is lifted up for us. Father, may we marvel at that man of sorrows when the sorrow should have all been ours. And may we rejoice every time we see that our life is not a curse, but a blessing. With every blessing, may we rejoice because what we deserved was for our curses to overtake us and for this life to be a living hell with only an eternal hell to follow. But we are so happy in you. So joyous. You have blessed us. You have graciously given us all things. And so we marvel at what we deserved. And because of Christ, what we now get. May we cherish Cherish this life that you have given us by walking according to the glory of the cross that brought this life to us. It is in Christ's name that we pray and declare Jesus is Lord. Amen.